following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we are working through a series in the book of Daniel. Uh, we've worked through eight chapters of this book so far through all the twists and turns in this book, and uh, we come to this chapter, chapter 9. So uh, as this chapter opens, this particular vision, this prophecy in the Bible, uh, you have to picture Daniel now as an old man. He's in his 80s now. We often picture Daniel being young, and at the beginning of the book he was, but he's now spent almost 70 years in Babylon. He came into Babylon as a teenager, as a young boy, but now he's done almost 70 years there. He's seen quite a bit of time. He has seen the Babylonian Empire rise and fall. Uh, he's seen a whole lot of different administrations come through, a number of different kings. And he has served in the royal court that whole time uh, as a senior official over the, over the city of Babylon and the empire beyond it. So he's seen a lot of ups and a lot of downs from having a very uh, important position of authority to being thrown in a den of lions. He's had it all, and now he's an elderly and aged man. But he's still there, and he's still serving, and he's still remaining faithful to God. So you've got to picture Daniel here, and he's praying one day in his bedroom. He's got his Bible out. And for Daniel, of course, he only had the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament like we do. That wasn't written yet. But he had his Old Testament. Most of the books that we have in our Old Testament were there. He had them. And he was reading them. And in particular, this one day, he was reading the book of Jeremiah. Uh, and he was reading some of the prophecies that God made to Israel in the book of Jeremiah. And these prophecies about how God was going to send Israel into exile. He was going to allow them to be conquered by other nations and taken into captivity away from their homeland in this foreign country called Babylon. And of course, Daniel knew that this was now happening. He was living through the exile. He was experiencing exactly what Jeremiah had prophesied was going to happen. Uh, but as he kept reading Jeremiah, he read in these prophecies, and we don't know exactly which parts of Jeremiah he was reading, but there's several of them. He read these prophecies that Israel's exile was going to last 70 years. Just 70 years. And so Daniel had a quick look at his calendar and realized the 70 years is almost up. I mean, he came in as a teenager. He's now in his 80s. It's like 70 years. That's almost finished, which means the time is coming when Israel's going to get to go home. Surely the time's now coming when the, the prophecy will be fulfilled and we get to go back to Israel. And that's what drives Daniel to pray. That's what leads him to then turn to God, put his Bible down for a minute and turn to God and just pray passionately and pray fervently that, that God would do exactly what he promised he would do through Jeremiah, lead his people home, bring this exile to an end, bring this judgment to an end. And that's what leads to this prayer that Daniel prays in chapter 9. It takes up most of the chapter is a prayer of Daniel, this passionate prayer where he brings all the sins of his people to God. And says, we're covered in guilt and we're covered in shame, but we pray that you would fulfill your promise and that you would restore Jerusalem. You would restore your holy hill at Zion. That's the, the hill that Jerusalem was built on. And he doesn't pray it directly, but what he's praying, of course, is that for God to restore Jerusalem would mean to bring his people home, to bring his people back to their homeland. That's what Daniel's really praying for. Now, this is a significant prayer in the Bible this one in Daniel 9. We can easily sort of brush through it because we want to get to the exciting words of prophecy at the end, and we'll get to those. 
But we can miss the fact that most of this chapter is a prayer. And it's an important prayer because it's the only time in the book of Daniel that we actually get to read one of Daniel's prayers. There's plenty of references to Daniel praying. We know that he was a man of prayer. We know he prayed often. He prayed daily. He prayed with the windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed often at great expense and cost to himself. But this is the only time in the book where you actually get to read what Daniel prayed and read one of his prayers. And so we learn a lot. We see the heart of this man here. We see the heart of his prayer life. We see what drove this prayer engine within him. And this prayer is really captured, I think, and summarized in one verse, one particular verse in verse 19. If you have a look at that, these three short phrases that Daniel prays, which really the whole thing is contained within this. He says, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. And you just hear it, don't you? hear the heart of this man. You hear the passion. You hear the pleading. that Daniel is just crying out from the depths of his being, not only for himself, but for his people, and praying that God would intervene, that God would rescue, that God would liberate Israel. It's a powerful prayer. And there's a lot in this prayer that we can learn from. There's a lot in these, these short little phrases that we can learn about prayer and about how our prayer lives can be enriched and can be strengthened. I think it's true for so many Christians that we just struggle to pray, don't we? Is that true? I mean, I put my hand up. I mean, that's my job is to pray, and I still struggle to pray. You know, it's just one of those things. I think so many Christians just find prayer really hard. We know it's important. We know we should do it. We probably pretend that we do do it when we're talking to other people. But in our heart of hearts, we know we don't really pray that much. We just don't do it. We find it hard. We find it tedious. We find it monotonous. We find it boring. We just struggle to get the motivation to pray. I find it hard. So I'm guessing you find it hard, right? We're all in this together. There's maybe the odd person that finds prayer really easy and it just pours out of them. But I think by and large, prayer is just something that Christians find difficult. And this prayer of Daniel can help us. Because we see the heart of prayer, we see what makes prayer so powerful, we see how it works, and I think through it our prayer lives can be strengthened, they can be enriched, and they can be deepened. So what I want to do is just look briefly at each of these phrases that Daniel prays, these short little crisp words, and look at what they have to teach us about how we can learn to pray. So Daniel firstly says, first phrase in verse 19, Lord, listen. Daniel had this conviction that God listens to prayer. That when he prayed, he really believed God was listening. And I wonder whether this is underneath a lot of our problems. That maybe the reason a lot of us just struggle to pray is because deep down, we don't really believe that God's listening. We don't really think he hears us. And if he does, we don't really think he cares. There's a song, there's a song by U2, the band U2. It's called Wake Up Dead Man. And it's an interesting song because it's, as far as I know, it's the only U2 song that has a swear word in it. And it's the only U2 song that directly addresses God. Now, I don't know whether those things are connected or not. You can decide that. But it's, it's interesting for those reasons. And this is a song in which they talk to God and try to get God to listen. It's the prayer of someone trying to get God to act. I'll read you a couple of verses, not the one with the swear word in it. They say, Jesus, I'm waiting here, boss. I know you're looking out for us, but maybe your hands aren't free. Your father, he made the world in seven. He's in charge of heaven. Will you put in a word for me? Wake up. Wake up, dead man. Wake up. Wake up, dead man. 
I think it reflects the way a lot of us feel about prayer. That we feel like when we pray, we're trying to wake up a dead man. We feel like we're trying to rouse a sleeping giant and kind of stir God to action. We just don't feel like we're getting anywhere. And I think underneath that, that maybe there's a faulty view of who God is. That we still fundamentally believe that God is distant. And that so when we pray, we're trying to reach this very distant being like on another planet, like we're trying to make contact with a God who is way out there in heaven somewhere in a distant realm. And so it's hard. It's hard to kind of make that contact. We're not even sure if we're getting through. We're not sure if it's working or not. And and when you have that view of God as being distant and disconnected and aloof, it makes prayer difficult. It makes prayer discouraging and demoralizing. But Daniel believed that when he prayed, he was praying to a God who was already present with him who was already right there. When we pray, whenever you pray, whenever you talk to God, no matter how stumbly or bumbly your words are, whenever you pray, you are praying to a God who is right there with you, who is already filling you with His presence, who is already surrounding you with His grace, who is already working within you in ways you cannot possibly comprehend, who is already the ground beneath your feet, who's already hovering over, watching over you, who's already ahead of you, who's already beside you. He's the God who is totally present. He's filling you in in ways you can't imagine. He is more present to you than you are to yourself. When we pray, we are praying to a God who is right there with us and even within us. And that should encourage us that God really does hear us. God really does listen. When you pray, God is inclining his ear to you. He's listening to you. You may feel like your words just falling to the floor. You might feel like nothing's happening. You might feel like, it's just, they're going nowhere. But you can know, it doesn't matter how you feel, but you can know that your prayer is reaching the ears of God and He loves to hear His children pray. He loves to hear His people pray and He receives every prayer. He welcomes every prayer, no matter how misguided, misdirected, whatever it is. He just loves to hear us pray. He loves to hear us talk to Him. Now, that doesn't always mean that God's going to respond to our prayers in the way we want Him to, We'll get to that. But it does mean that he always welcomes us to pray. He just delights in hearing the prayer of his children. And so we can know, we can have this confidence that when we pray, God listens. When we pray, God really does hear us every time. So Daniel prays, Lord, listen. And then he prays, Lord, forgive. Most of this prayer that Daniel prays is a prayer of confession. It's a prayer where he's bringing Israel's sin to God and he's asking for God's forgiveness. And this should be an important part of our prayer lives. Most of the time, when we do pray, we're making requests of God, aren't we? Most of the time, because we're in difficult times, we're struggling and we need God's help. But we've got to remember there's an important dimension of prayer where we're bringing our sin to God, we're bringing it out of the shadows, out of the darkness, and we're we're doing what we did before. We're doing what we did leading into communion confessing our sin to God. And this should be a regular practice for Christians. It should be an ongoing and steady practice of our lives where we are allowing God to cleanse us by His grace. There is a danger with this one. There's a danger when it comes to prayers of confession. I know it firsthand because I've experienced it. I've had times when I've sat down to confess something to God. There's been some, some sin or practice or habit or whatever it may be. And I've, I've sat down to go through this time of confession and I've got up half an hour later, and I feel worse than I did when I sat down. 
And I'm in a worse place and I'm in a worse space than when I started. And the reason is because I've allowed the process of what should have been confession to become self-pity. And so easily this happens, right? You know it. You can sit down, especially those of you that are melancholic personalities like me. You sit down and it doesn't take long for you to dwell on your own sin and you enter a negative spiral mentally and emotionally. And it just takes you down to a dark place. You start to wallow in it. You start to, you're covered in guilt. You, you just feel shame. You feel the self-rejection. You just feel the self-loathing. And it just takes you to an awful, awful place. And you wonder, why did I bother doing this? I felt bad before I started. I'm feeling terrible now. This is where I think it's really helpful to stay close to Scripture. And that's why I used Psalm 51 in that prayer of confession. Because left to our own devices, we don't really know how to do confession very well. And it does very easily just drift into a dark space. That's why it's good to stay close to passages of Scripture that walk us through this. Psalm 51 is a great one. I mean, I use that all the time. My Bible just about falls open now in Psalm 51. That's how much of a sinner I am, that I need it all the time. And that's a prayer, that's a prayer that David prayed after he was confronted with the sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba. That's pretty major. And David then prayed this prayer of confession and repentance to God. It's a wonderful psalm because it does take you down. There's this descending part where it does take you down. It takes you to the depth of your being. If you really pray those words, it takes you right into cleanse me and search me. And it's a recognition of our sinfulness. But then there's this upward part where it says, create in me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Wonderful words. And gets to that that wonderful line that we finished with. the, The sacrifices that God delights in are a broken and a contrite heart. A broken and a contrite spirit. He will not despise. He doesn't send us away. And so the psalm lifts us up into a place where we can be restored. And we're renewed and God's grace covers us and we stand forgiven and freed and facing forward and ready to walk out again in confidence before Jesus. So that's what confession should look like. There should be this downward and then upward motion to it. If it just takes you downwards, that's not confession. That's something else. That's just a false guilt. But confession takes us through that and upwards into life and into freedom because ultimately the purpose is to restore us. So I want to encourage you, if you don't have this kind of practice in your life, make it part of your prayer life where you just bring it. And of course, you can't possibly name and confess everything that's wrong in your life. We, we don't even, we're not even aware of half of our brokenness most of the time. But just those things that you are aware of, particularly times when you really mess up and you stuff up and you screw up, just bring those honestly to God and set them before Him. Be willing to name them honestly. Don't don't hide, don't justify, don't rationalize. Just put them there and allow God to refresh you and cover you and envelop you again in His grace, and He will do that. You may not feel much different. That's fine. Don't use your feelings as a barometer of how all this works. The important thing is that you've confessed and you've allowed God to renew you in His grace. And use a passage like Psalm 51, and there's other Psalms like it, to do this. They will keep you close to the heart of God and they'll keep you focused on grace, which is what confession is all about. So Daniel prays, Lord, listen, Lord, forgive. And then he says, Lord, hear and act. And here what he's doing is petitioning God. Here he is making a request to God. And it's a bold prayer. I love the way Daniel prays this bold prayer. 
He's got confidence. He's willing to pray a big prayer. He's willing to ask God without qualification to restore and to liberate his people and to make good on the promise that God himself had said. Daniel prays this big prayer. It gives us permission, I think, to pray boldly, to ask God for what we need and what other people need and to be able to have that confidence that God does hear and God does respond. And God responds to Daniel. When Daniel finishes praying, the angel Gabriel shows up. Now, that's probably not going to happen each time you pray, but Gabriel shows up, and Gabriel is a significant angel in the Bible. We're going to talk more about angels next week, but Gabriel, one of the named angels in the Bible, he's the angel that appears to Mary and announces she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Whenever Gabriel shows up in the Bible, something significant is about to happen. <clears throat> and Gabriel shows up here, and he, he talks with Daniel, and he provides an explanation for Daniel of what's going to happen with Israel. And in particular, he provides an explanation of this prophecy that Daniel has just been reading in the book of Jeremiah about the 70 years of Israel's exile. And it's kind of what, what Gabriel says is kind of a, a bad news, good news scenario. The bad news is, he says, Daniel, I know that Israel's exile was only said to be 70 years, but because Israel's sin has continued, this exile is not going to be 70 years. It's going to be 77s. That's the phrase in verse 24, 77s. Some of your translations say 70 weeks. It literally means 70 units of seven. Usually that's taken as meaning 70 times seven. 70 years times seven, 490 years. Now there's debate about whether that number should be taken literally as literally 490 years from a certain point or whether it should be taken figuratively. I tend to think it should be taken figuratively and symbolically. It's interestingly the same number that Jesus gives when he says, how often, well, Peter asks, how often should we forgive people? How many times should I forgive my brother? And you remember what Jesus says? 70 times seven. Not just seven times, but keep on forgiving. 70 times seven. Now, is Jesus saying we should just forgive people 490 times and leave it at that? No, he's saying keep on forgiving. Seven in the Bible is a symbolic number. It means perfection. It means completion. It means totality. It's a perfect, full, total thing that's being described. And so in the case of Jesus, he's saying, keep on forgiving as long as forgiveness is required. Forgive to the full extent. And I think what Gabriel is saying to Daniel is not that it's going to be literally 490 years before Israel gets to go back, but he's saying Israel's exile is not just going to be 70 years, but it will be multiplied out for a much, much longer period of time. Israel's exile is going to be extended for a much greater, much, much greater length of time. And it's very interesting to see how all this plays out in history. Because those of you that know your history, you'd be saying at this point, well, hang on a minute, but Israel's exile did only last 70 years. So how can it be extended out seven more times? Well, it's true. Soon after Daniel received this prophecy, the Israelites were allowed to return home. And the physical exile of Israel lasted more or less 70 years. And then they were back in their land. They got to go back to Jerusalem. They got to rebuild the temple and the walls and the city and so on. But when you read the story after that time period, once Israel's back in their land, there's this strong sense that something is still not right. That something is still missing. All of these wonderful prophecies of what was supposed to happen after the exile, have not been fulfilled. 
For one thing, after Israel comes back into its land, it's still an occupied people. It doesn't have freedom. It's under the oversight of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. They get to rebuild the temple, but God's presence never again fills the temple as it did under Solomon. The temple's filled with corrupt priests. They have governors, they have leaders, they have rulers, but never again does Israel have kings. Certainly not the type of kings like David and Solomon. And all these promises that Jeremiah made about what life would be like after the exile, I mean, he said after that time, God would make a new covenant with his people, that he would write his law on their hearts and their minds. Well, none of that had happened. And so there began to be this sense within Israel that maybe in some way the exile is not yet over. That even though we've returned to our land, maybe we are still a people that are somehow captive. Maybe we're in some kind of exile. Yes, the physical exile is over, but spiritually, Israel was still in exile. They had returned to their land, but God had not yet returned to his people. God had not yet come back to them. And that, I think, is what Gabriel is describing by this longer, extended time of exile, the 77s. He's saying it's not just the 70 years you're going to be in Babylon. The exile of Israel will go on much, much longer. It ended up being about five and a half centuries. Even after you're back in your land, that's not the point. You will still be exiles. You'll still be separated from God, alienated from Him, disconnected from Him. Things will not be right, and you're going to experience a much, much longer form of of exile. So that's the bad news. That's, that's the last thing Daniel wanted to hear. He was hoping it was almost over. But then there's good news. And this is the, the beautiful part of the prophecy that Gabriel describes, is that there will finally be an end to this exile. It will eventually, it's not going to go on forever. Eventually it will end. And what an amazing ending it is going to have. In verse 25, the good news appears that the exile will end finally with the appearing of this figure called the anointed one. And that pretty clearly, I think, refers to Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Finally, Israel's exile will be over when the Christ appears. And if you read verse 24 and this description of what's going to happen when the 77s are over, it's basically a summary of Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. Just look at the list. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's the work of Christ. That's the finished work of Christ right there. By the way, that phrase about sealing up vision and prophecy, don't let that trip you up. It doesn't mean to close up vision in the sense of sealing it to close it. To seal it is like putting a presidential seal on it. It means to authenticate it, to confirm it to be true. That's what Jesus did with all biblical prophecy. He authenticated it. How? By fulfilling it. And so he confirmed it to be true. And so this is a description of Jesus' life and his death and his ongoing work, but particularly the work that he accomplished on the cross. And, and this is the end point of Israel's exile. You see what Gabriel is saying here when you put the whole picture together? He's saying, on the one hand, Israel's exile, it's going to continue on much longer than when they arrive back in the homeland. It's going to be the spiritual exile that goes on for centuries. But finally, Jesus will come and he will be the return from exile. He will finally lead God's people back home. Not in a, not in a physical sense of they'll already be in the land, but they'll, they'll come home to God. Jesus will bring people back to God. He will be the one that reconciles us to God. Jesus is the end 
of exile. He is our true spiritual homecoming. He's the one who brings in the atonement for sin. He's the one who puts an end to wickedness. He's the one who brings in everlasting righteousness, not just for Israel, but for all people. It's a beautiful prophecy, isn't it? Wonderful description of the way Jesus fulfills the long, winding story of Israel. It all comes to a culmination in the work of Christ. But we've got to remember, all that came in response to Daniel's prayer. It's it's not that if Daniel hadn't prayed, God never would have sent Jesus. But all this revelation comes in response to Daniel praying. Daniel prays, Lord, hear and act. And Gabriel shows up and he says, boy, you better believe God's going to act. Here's what he's going to do for the next five centuries. And guess where that's going to end? With Jesus. I mean, God acts in response to Daniel's prayer. And it it should encourage us. Every time we pray, God acts. Every time. Now, he may not act the way you want him to act, but I really believe every time we pray, something happens. Every time we pray, God releases his power to earth in some way. Now, we may not see what he does. We may never see the effects of it, and it may not be the specific thing, because if we're not praying in line with God's will, if we're praying down this track, God will work, but he's going to work down this track because this is his will. And yet that doesn't matter. He will just take our prayers, even if they're selfish prayers, and he'll use them in releasing his power into those things that are his will and the things he really does want to get done on earth. He will release his power into the situations that we are praying for and we're praying around. But the beauty is we don't need to worry about whether we're praying the right thing or not. God will just wrap that all up and he'll just act in the ways that is right and good and pleasing to him. But he still uses our prayers. Our prayers will will move the hand of God. And so we can pray bold prayers. We can pray courageous prayers, can't we? We should pray big prayers. I think sometimes we just pray puny prayers. We pray tentative prayers. We'd like death by a thousand qualifications. You know, it's like, God, I pray you do this thing, but if you don't want to, it's all right. You know, I understand, and if you don't, that's fine, and, I, you know, it's all okay, and I know you probably don't want to anyway. By the time we're finished, we've talked ourselves out of it. We've sort of convinced God why he shouldn't answer our prayers, you know. We need to just pray boldly. God knows he hears our hearts. I don't mean to pray arrogantly, but I mean we just should pray with confidence. The Bible invites us to. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus told a parable about prayer, and he compared it to a man knocking on the door of his friend's house, trying to wake him up. Sounds like a U2 song. Knocking on the door, trying to wake the friend up because he needs some help. And at the end of that parable, here's what he says. Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Don't you love those words? I'd never seen those words in the Bible before yesterday. Because of your shameless audacity. That is Jesus telling you how to pray. With shameless audacity. I didn't say it. And if Jesus hadn't said it, we might need to be a bit more careful and choose our words a bit more carefully. But here's the Messiah of the universe telling you to pray with shameless audacity. Now, please, I'm not saying that we should pray with a sense of entitlement. Yes, we approach the throne of grace with confidence, but we've got to remember it's still a throne. But we can pray boldly, and we can pray courageously, and we can leave the qualifications to God. He invites us to do that, and in fact, it's a mark of being His children, that we get to cry out for good gifts. And the Bible says, what child who asks for bread, his father's going to give him a stone. God gives good gifts. 
Now, we need to accept God will work in ways that we can't see, and He may not answer your prayers in the way that you want Him to answer, but we can learn to pray with boldness and with confidence to our Heavenly Father. So I want to encourage you to take these words of Daniel's, these, these, these short words, Lord, hear, and act, and take out the word act, because that's quite generic, and put a word in there that represents what you want to pray. So think about this on a few levels. Think about your own life or someone in your family. Think about a, a difficulty that you're having in your family right now, maybe a health issue. So your prayer might be, Lord, hear and heal. You don't need to say a lot of other words. God knows. The Bible says before a word is on your lips, he knows it completely. Another verse in Scripture says, You are God in heaven, here I am on earth, so I'll let my words be few. That's good advice. God knows. Sometimes when I pray, I just bring the person's name to God. Don't even need to describe the situation. You can just bring their name. But it might be this kind of prayer, Lord, hear and heal. What about a prayer for someone that you know? Maybe someone in our church community, maybe another family that you know. Let's say they're struggling financially at the moment. Things are really, really tight. Your prayer for them might simply be, Lord, hear and provide. Provide. That's it. God knows. What about a prayer for something going on in our city or our nation? Think of all the broken relationships, broken families, broken marriages. Maybe your prayer is, Lord, hear and restore. Or, Lord, hear and reconcile. You choose the word, but maybe this prayer of Daniel can just give you some words, some very brief words, to start praying big prayers, which may still be very short prayers, but can really be very powerful prayers. I want to finish this morning with a prayer. It's not a prayer that I wrote, but sometimes I think, especially as evangelicals, we can assume the only prayers worth praying are spontaneous ones that arise from my heart in the moment, and that's not the case. Sometimes there's great value in praying very old prayers written by someone else. The problem with our prayers is we're limited by our language and our thoughts, but to pray the words of someone else, to pray the prayer that Christians have prayed for centuries that men and women of God have gone before us and prayed these words to our Father, and we can now take them and make them our words to our Heavenly Father. There's great power in that. I want to lead you in a prayer, which is a Puritan prayer. It comes from the 16th or 17th century, a group of Christians known as Puritans. And this was one of many prayers that they prayed and used in their community. I think it captures the heart of Daniel's prayer, especially around confessing and desiring God to work in our lives and in our church, our community, and transform us and make us new. So let's use this prayer. Let's use these words to lead our hearts to God and make this prayer our own. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be thine alone. Give me a deeper trust, that I may lose myself to find myself in thee, the ground of my rest, the spring of my being. Give me a deeper knowledge of thyself as Saviour, Master, Lord, and King. Give me deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in thy word, more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action, and let me not seek moral virtue apart from thee. Plow deep in me, great Lord, that my being may be a tilled field, the roots of grace spreading far and wide until thou alone art seen in me. 
thy beauty golden like summer harvest, thy fruitfulness as autumn plenty. I have no master but thee, no law but thy will, no delight but thyself, no wealth but that thou givest, no good but that thou blessest, no peace but that thou bestowest. I am nothing but that thou makest me. I have nothing but that that I receive from thee. I can be nothing but that grace adorns me. Quarry me deep, dear Lord, and then fill me to overflowing with living water. Father, I just sense as I read those words that that's the cry of our heart. We just have this hunger for more of your presence, for more of your power, more of your spirit in our lives and in our church community. And Father, we just want to confess to you, as your people, we confess our prayerlessness. That we have just not prayed, God. And we pray that you would make us people who love to pray, love to come and spend time with our Heavenly Father, to worship you, to confess our sin, and to make requests of you. We thank you that when we pray, you hear and you act. You did for Daniel and you will for us. Make us people of prayer. Make us a community of prayer, we pray, for Christ's sake. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.